this idea of mitochondria, if we understand it, what is mitochondria? You know, it's it's the energy driving force. And we go back right. to what we learned in year one in medical school or in, you know, even in high school, that the role of mitochondria. So I think what we need to do is, you know, inflammation, you know, where the, there's a lot of good work going on and not inflammation like I got an infection because I got right. a cut, but what's going on in the brain. So we're mm -hmm. talking about the neuroinflammasome as being important in depression and anxiety. I think it plays an important role in concussion. Welcome back, everyone, to Wellness at the Speed of Light, episode number five, where we talk everything wellness and go down that wellness rabbit hole. Today, we're really pleased to welcome a very, very special guest, Dr. David Barron, an esteemed, world-renowned psychiatrist who is currently serving as the Senior Vice President and Provost of Western University of Health Sciences since 2019. He's been a beacon of leadership, driving forward the boundaries of health science education with a vision rooted in excellence and innovation. He embarked on his illustrious journey in medicine and psychiatry with a foundation laid at some of the most prestigious institutions in the country. He first earned his uh, degree at the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, followed by a residency at the University of Southern California, a place where he would later leave a tremendous mark as a professor and a leader. His formidable training ground prepared him to navigate the complexities of mental health with a blend of compassion and scientific rigor. His current research interests include ADHD, concussion in sports, global mental health literacy, neuroimaging of concussion, depression education, community health, and the role of mental health in the primary care world. In addition to his remarkable career in medicine and academia, his commitment to global health and education is tremendous and demonstrated in multiple, multiple ways. He's done multiple Fulbright tenures. He's had multiple prestigious appointments, which has taken him all around the world, fostering international collaboration and understanding in mental health and mental health care. These experiences not only highlight his global impact, but also his dedication to enhancing psychiatric education and practice all around the world. He's been the deputy dean of the Czech School of Medicine at USC, and his leadership in academic affairs has been pivotal. He's had tenure as professor and chair of psychiatry, showing a commitment to nurturing the next generation of healthcare professionals with a keen focus on mental health and overall mental health inpatient care. He's had a tremendous, tremendous background in sports psychiatry. And dating back to 1984, he's been involved in the Olympic uh, Games and most recently was at the 2022 Games uh, in Beijing. He's got a distinctive approach to psychiatric care in elite athletes, and his career really demonstrates a critical balance between physical prowess of these athletes and psychological resilience, which is a vital component of athletic success and well-being. Through his many uh, leadership roles, uh, such as the Secretary of the World Psychiatric Organization and the President of the Pacific Rim College of Psychiatrists, he's been at the forefront of the 
uh, community and destigmatizing mental health issues and improving psychiatric care globally. His scholarly work include seminal publications such as Clinical Sports Psychology on International Perspectives and Essentials in Psychiatry and Primary Care. This has enriched the field of psychiatry. His list, honestly, of publications, lectures, and other things he's been involved in are way too long uh, to discuss here uh, before we bring him on the show. His career is just a mosaic of groundbreaking achievements, unwavering dedication to mental health advocacy, education, and patient care. His tenures all around the world and his commitment to Olympic psychiatry is really incredible. I have no other words for it. As we welcome him today on the show, we're so excited to really ask him questions ranging from sports psychiatry, concussion medicine, his experience in the Olympics, addiction medicine, ADHD, the current state of healthcare and how much we're focusing on mental well-being and the state of happiness. And so without further delay, we're welcomed and pleased uh, to bring him on our show today. You know, you're a third generation psychiatrist. Correct. What was the, the thing that you just said, hey, this is the thing for me? You know, it, it's a great question because you know, my dad and grandfather were both psychiatrists, so I always got a chance to see it. I, I actually was thinking about going into orthopedics because I was interested in sports medicine. And what I realized was that what really motivated me was trying to understand how people think, feel, and behave. And that didn't fit so well into an orthopedic model. So, I mean, I've been very active in sports medicine for my entire career. But for me, it's, and, and you know, when my students or residents ask me, what's the best specialty? I said, the best one is the one that you're really excited about. You walk into a room and there's 10 different journals there. What's the one that you pick up that you want to read just for fun? Because life's too short. We all work too hard to get to where we are. I was always fascinated by the brain. Not so much as a as a neurologist as understanding the brain as an organ. That's a critical part. I mean, I'm I'm boarded in neuropsychiatry, so I got to have in brain injury medicine. But I think this idea of what is it about us as human beings that kind of results in the way we think, feel, and behave, and what can we do to improve that to, in fact, make a positive impact on the quality of our life. However, we're going to define that. I'd say, I mean, that, that's, that's a great answer. So, you know, my next question, pretty straightforward. I see that just from the little bit that we've been talking, I see how passionate you are about, about teaching. And I've watched some of your stuff on YouTube. And I, I, I listen, that, that is in your DNA to teach others about the, you know, the things that are doing. You've worn a lot of hats, you know, provost, you've been chairman of this and that and the other. What, what, what do you think now? You've had all these roles in, in academic medicine. What, what would you say is kind of your, your, your most fulfilling part of it? You probably can say all of them, but if there's one thing that you could say, this is the most fulfilling part of what I do. You know, uh, it, it's a wonderful question. For me, you really hit the nail on the head. You actually answered it for me. It's the things I can feel passionate about. I can feel very, I love teaching and supervising for many different disciplines. I mean, the university I'm at now, Western University, we have eight different graduate schools. Um, we have a vet school. We have a, a dental school. 
I love the opportunity to go and interact with trainees in this. And I talk to public policy makers. I've, I've been very blessed to be able to work with uh, you know ministers of health in some other countries. So the things that really get me going, you know, the secret sauce for me that allows me to feel passionate is the ability to not only teach, but to learn. I've learned so much, you know, it sounds like a cliche, from a student asking me a question, particularly in different disciplines. You know, it's not just this myopic, it's got to be medicine, but a public policy person says, hey, this is great. So how are you going to pay for that? So I think this idea of being able to interact and understanding how all these many pieces of this puzzle come together and feeling passionate to share what I've been taught and what I've learned, but that process of constantly learning and staying focused on, for me, the bottom line is, what can we do to improve the quality of life? And I do, as you say, I do a lot of work with athletes, but it's really the, the general population. So it's, and I feel just so lucky to have been given these opportunities and the passion's what drives it. Well, yeah, I mean, I feel just like, you know, as a spine surgeon, you know, I've always been passionate about spine, everything spine surgery. And that's what drove me. I mean, it was a no brainer when I was doing my training that I was going to go into spine surgery. I fell in love with it. I wanted to read everything that was out there. You know, now what I'm finding kind of mid-career is that not only am I passionate about that, but but I'm really passionate about lifestyle medicine and everything that we, you know, as a medical group, you know, society need to really get out to the public. And we really need to focus on prevention and making people feel just generally better. And one of the interesting things that I had from one of our other guests was great. He said, modern medicine gave the baby boomers the gift of a longer life. But the question is, how are they leading that life? Are they healthy? Are they, are they sick for 30 years, you know, looking out of a window of a nursing home with things that could have been prevented? So now I have got, I've got stacks and stacks of books that I'm just pouring through on just everything, lifestyle medicine. You know, one of the topics I'm really passionate about is concussion. We'll get to that after. But yeah, that was a great answer. I really appreciate that. I think the next question that the next kind of line of questioning that I want to go down is your tremendous experience in the world of sports psychology. You know, you, you were there at the 2022 Beijing Olympics, you know, and, and, and you are, uh, you know, national institutes of mental health. I mean, you're very, very dialed into that part of that world and being tapped for all these different, you know, hats that you wear. What do you think in sports psychiatry is, is are the most critical things that we all need to be thinking about where, when we see patients or, or just as people watching this that are into sports, they're, they're hardcore sports or their kids are playing sports? What are, the, like, what are some key points that you can give to them on sports psychiatry? Yeah, well, we could do probably a whole weekend on that because, oh, as you said, I was fortunate. I started working with the Olympics back in, uh, you know, as a physician back in the, the 84 games. I've been blessed to be able to, you know, be at quite a number of games. Yeah. And what I, one of the really wonderful things that I've seen, we got a long way to go, is breaking down the prejudice about, you know, psychiatric symptoms and syndromes. And what's really had the greatest impact, I'd love to say I had a great impact in that, but that, that, you know, that would be overly narcissistic and probably not even close to being accurate. What's had to change is the acceptance. So when you have more key big name athletes, you know, whether it's Simone Biles, you know, Michael Phelps, you know, we can go on and on. There's a fairly long list, but that it was okay to deal with those issues. Again, being involved with, with the Olympics and high level sports for you know, many decades now, the difference between the champion and those who aren't the champions 
is usually not, you know, something as an orthopod, uh, you know, or, you know, that, that we say it's, it's that special thing that drives mm-hmm. someone to mm-hmm. win. So in the area of youth sports, I'm very involved with this now internationally is I'm really concerned about burnout in youth sports. This is yes. a big deal. I mean, we've got a big uh, three or four countries will work. I got a new study. We just started looking at this. So why are kids getting burned out? And that's, again, topic for a whole nother discussion. But I think what we're seeing now is victory, whether it's victory in the field of competition, winning the gold medal, or just victory in life. It really has to do with that balance between emotional and physical, that they're not two separate things. Like the best athletes, the best coaches. I was a former athlete myself. The coaches that knew how to motivate in a way that you weren't fearful of it. So I talk a lot about the enjoyment factor. And we have data now that's emerging fairly large showing that these kids are getting burned out, not because they don't do it, because it's not fun anymore. Yes. You know, they're not enjoying it. And, it, you know, so I think what we need to do in the world of sport, I know when I worked the 84 games, I think I was the only psychiatrist that worked in, in the Olympic Village, you know, because you just didn't talk about that. The, the prejudice against you know, psychiatric or psychological symptoms, forget syndromes even. And it's gone very slowly, but it's gone, I think, in the right direction. And I think the idea of us working together. So I work with sports orthopods. I've learned from them. Hopefully they've learned a little from me, but we all learn from the athlete who is then the patient. So I, I think what I've seen is an acceptance of the important role of this. You know, we see it in the dark side, you know, the 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 sexual abuse that we see of coaches, you know, unfortunately, the Larry, Larry Nasser story and, the, yeah. you know, we can go on and on. But the importance of having our head on straight, you know, being in that zone, I think being in the zone as an athlete is about having that sense of enjoyment, focus and fulfillment and not dealing with some of the more negative emotions. You know, I have a couple of boys myself, teenage boys that, that are in sport, and they they certainly have had their ups and downs. And my older one plays at a real high level. He's on uh, Minnesota United's like uh, their their junior team, their their U seventeen. So there's certainly a lot of you know pressure on these kids. Do you think that each one of these athletes, even at the youth level, do you think it should almost be mandatory that they've got some kind of mental health guidance? That's just kind of a standard across the board. I know there's resource issues and so many of these things, but should it be that all of them get evaluated for their mental health from time to time? Or should coaches be doing that only? We don't want coaches to feel like they have to be sports psychologists. Right. Um, they're out there for a particular reason. What I do believe is important is having coaches appreciate what's going to help those young athletes, not only to perform on the athletic field or in school, but in life, you know, keeping that proper balance. So I think you really hit on a really important point that we're dealing with. Actually, again, we've started some programs internationally. We're looking at how do we, how do we have every youth athlete get the most out of their participation? I'm a huge fan of getting involved with sports, but I'd be lying if I didn't say there are some kids who say, you know, I've just had it. It's just too much pressure. You know, the toxic stress we talk about to me, sports shouldn't get to that point. To answer your question, I think it is important that coaches get some training on what is your role to not, you know, so you can mm-hmm. understand it. Maybe just to identify, hey, you know, this kid's something's mad that, you know, maybe you need to go talk to it, whatever it might be. I don't think we want to pathologize it. We don't want people mm-hmm. to say, you know, what do we do? You know, we measure strength, you know, we measure range of motion, we measure hand eye coordination. I do believe, and we're seeing this in some of the Olympic development programs I'm working with around the world, we've got a big pro- couple of big projects going on now, is that this should be another factor. So we're, we're, we're calling it the fun factor. When the kids say, yeah, you know, 
uh, it was a tough workout. I'm still into it as opposed to, you know, I'm just hanging on. So I, I think you're right. I think we need to expand. It shouldn't just be the psychiatrist, the psychologist. It shouldn't just be the trainer. But what is our particular role? I don't want to tell a coach what plays they should be running. I don't want to tell them how to, yeah. you know, how to create, you know, you know, a winning lineup, even though I played sports in it. I want us to be able to work together with the goal of how do we get the most for this? Coaches want to win and lose. You know, when you higher up, you go to the chain, you get promoted by if you're a winning coach. You know, if you're a winning coach and you're a jerk, they just say you're eccentric. If you're a losing coach and a jerk, you're a jerk and get fired. So, you know, we all understand that. So I, I believe you raised a really important point. Yeah. And this is the one of the things I want to continue to push is that the mental health of the athlete is an important part of them achieving success both in competition, during training, and ultimately life success. What I've seen in now working with a lot of youth through mentorship and through other things, and and through knowing a lot of people that are in positions like kind of higher, like principals of schools and 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 a lot of athletic directors since since COVID, yeah. the general mental health. So so you get the sports aspect of it, but general mental health in the student body populations without question has deteriorated. I mean, there's a lot of issues. I mean, it's harder in like disadvantaged communities, obviously, because, you know, school was their one outlet and then things were closed. And what do you think that we need to do on a policy level to start promoting better mental health programs more across the board? Let's just say in the U.S., because these schools have such limited resources to help some of these kids, I know you're an expert in ADHD, but depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation—I mean, it's off the chart. And these and these kids, not just in high schools, but now down like to the grammar school level. So, are, yeah. is that something you're involved in in policy? And kind of what are your thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. So to answer that, and again, an excellent question. So I've been invited to the last two G20 meetings uh, that we just had. That we just had the one in India, and then before that, and what I was asked to present on as part of that through the through the SBMT and the G20 is on adolescent suicide, which, as you know, really spiked during COVID. And so what was and I got involved with that many years ago with the Italian government looking at, you know, how, what can we do to improve the next generation mm-hmm. of, you know, choosing to kill themselves? I think one of the things we need to do is we need to be very tuned into the subtle and not so subtle prejudice. When we talk about depression, anxiety, you know, it's like only crazy people get that get that way. I think what we saw during COVID-19 was people say, you know what, even kind of normal people can get depressed and anxious based on this thing that, that you don't have to be a crazy person. So one of the few, but one of the silver linings of COVID-19, I think, were people to understand that, you know, a life circumstance, a global circumstance can really affect the way I think, feel and behave. And particularly with kids. Uh, I talked about this yesterday. My wife, again, I said she's a coach. They couldn't practice during COVID, but the kids, yeah. would, you know, the girls would get together and they'd be on social media. So they quote, so I said, the first day they were able to get back to practice live. They ran up, they were hugging each other. They were crying, even though they've been seeing them because we are social animals and children, mm-hmm. you know, we, we are meant to be with. So I think what I'd like to see us do in working towards an understanding is not to say, well, we're just here to treat pathology, depression, anxiety, whatever. But what you're doing with your with your podcast, it's about wellness, quality of life. You know, no one gets, you know, there's not a lot of prejudice against trying to improve the quality of life. I think most people can buy into that. So I think our use of language 
becomes mm-hmm. really important because we are not to the point. I think it's gotten better. You know, people are talking about anxiety, depression, whether it's a mood state or a psychiatric syndrome, but focusing on wellness and what can I do to improve the quality of my life, whether I'm a six-year-old or I'm a mm-hmm. 96-year-old. And that, I think this is about, it's about wellness, both physical and emotional, which are really interconnected. They're all one in the same. So that's why I'm, I really want to thank you for allowing me to be a part of this, but this focus, and I love the idea of the speed of light. We can't wait forever. The longer it goes without doing it, the more difficult it is. You know, for the physicians in our audience, is it easier to treat cancer when you catch it early or when it's, you know, stage four level? You know, as an orthopod, is it easier to fix something or try to deal with it when someone's been dealing, you know, for years that we get compensatory mechanisms that might not be so healthy? So I really love that concept of focusing on wellness and quality of life, but having it be something of urgency. It's completely urgent. And that's why, you know, even though, you know, I, I was wearing all these these kind of different hats, you know, as a spine surgeon, you know, running the practice and things when when at, at some point the light bulb went off and said, you know what, I've got a voice in this community and I have to start using it to making differences because we are treating the 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 symptoms of disease that has been brewing for a long time. And that includes mental disease, right? Because the signs are there and we just don't see it. So as, as physicians, especially, you know, on both sides, physical and mental, we need to start asking the questions before the pathology arises. Because I think yeah. we can make a massive difference. Like I'm a huge, I've become like a, a, an absolute maniac. I want to almost say it with 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 people's diets and the level of confusion or not understanding into how much damage they are doing to their own bodies with high sugar intakes, uh, you know, with just inappropriate nutrition, consumption of toxins. I can go on and on and on. I know I'm preaching to the choir, obviously, from from everything I hear from you. But but it, it's become a mission for me as as you know, obviously it's a huge mission for you. We'll get to lifestyle medicine because I want to kind of spend the last part of it. I want to just go through some some syndromes before we get to the lifestyle medicine, because I think that what you're going to tell our audience on on kind of the way that the lifestyle is going to change their 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 it's going to fire their genes, those genes that are that are tunable, not that five percent you can't do anything about the other 95 percent that are going to get turned on and off depending on what they do. So before we get to that, since we were on the topic of of sports, I want to get into concussion where you have done like amazing work. You're on all these task forces and commissions and all kinds of stuff. And I, I got myself, I mean, I've been peripherally involved with, with concussion through the years, just covering games and things as an orthopod back in the day when I was at Columbia. But then more recently, because we have a neurosurgical practice, we see so much concussion taking care of patients at a level one trauma center. And not just that, but also the subtle concussions, all these little findings. And now I am picking up so many concussions in clinic where I wasn't even picking it up myself. Why? Because I'm asking the right questions about concussion. Whereas before I was like, oh, you have neck pain. You're here for neck pain. But I wasn't asking them, are you forgetful? You know, all these other, you know, headache. We were just attributing that to their bad necks, not to the fact that they, you know, they took a ding. So you have a tremendous experience in concussion. Could you just give them a little rundown of of kind of how you've been involved in the world of concussion and a little bit about your research on concussion and what you're finding? Sure. And I think concussion is a, is a wonderful way of understanding that if we look at the impact, and I do mostly in the area of sports concussion, I've done a little bit with the military, but that's been my primary focus. You don't want to mess around with your brain for a very long time. But most of the literature that we look at, whether it's a scientific or otherwise, 
was focusing on traumatic brain injury, where we have a fracture, a bleed, you know, there's something going on. And I've always posited that that what we learn about traumatic brain injury is not exactly the same with concussion. And the analogy I've used is if you go into a burn unit where patients have suffered severe burns, you know, from they were in a motor vehicle accident or they were fire in the house, whatever, how much do we learn about sunburn by studying those patients? It's not a whole lot. So I think what's happened is the TBI literature, which has been around, you know, we can we can go back to sports to Martland in the you know in the 30s, mm-hmm. but that we didn't appreciate that concussion or brain impacts important from very early on. So the what I've seen is as we've gotten more education and understanding of it, now we got a long way to go and there's a lot of stuff out there that I think needs to be studied even more. So I got involved actually through sports. You know, I remember as a kid, uh, as you said, I'm a third generation psychiatrist. My grandfather was actually the ringside doctor at the Dempsey Tunney fight as a wow. psychiatrist going back a lot of years. My dad worked with the, uh, you know, with the, the old Boston Patriots and um, my, my my grandfather worked for the old Philadelphia Warriors, so I'm showing my age here now. But what you saw, I remember going to an AMA convention when I was just a kid, and there's a guy shining shoes, and you know, African American guy shining shoes, and he runs up to my grandfather, wasn't a big guy, and gives him this bear hug, and I'm thinking, oh my, what's this guy's attacking him? Long story short, this guy had been a former world champion boxer, and I remember asking my grandfather, "Why is this guy, but former gold medal, and then was a, a professional boxer, shining shoes in the Fontainebleau Hotel in Miami?" And he looked at me, and I actually I made a film on concussion that's been out for a while now. He looked at me and he said, "Davy, always take good care of your brain." This I so that got me into, as a very young age about the role of brain impacts. I've been able to take care of a number of Olympic and professional boxers over the years. I covered boxing in a number of summer games. And I was always impressed with that. Or someone would get hurt and they say, well, you know, you go get a standard workup. Well, we didn't see anything on the MRI or there wasn't a bleeder, so you're okay. So I've had a longstanding interest in understanding the impact of uh, the downstream effect of multiple brain impacts. And sometimes you don't see the symptoms, certainly the psychiatric, psychological symptoms, so sometimes decades later, well, why is that? That's not the classic. It's not like you get a cut and then, you know, six months later, you start to bleed. And yeah, that's not what we're used to. So I've been under interested in understanding the biology of concussion. What's going on? Why do we get this kind of mixed clinical picture, these various clinical phenotypes? And what we're understanding now is that, that this sensitization kindling model, that these multiple brain impacts result in some of these symptoms and, you know, we have the sports concussion assessment tools. Mm-hmm. I've been involved with some of those. And, you know, now we just came out with, you know, with, with the newest SCAT from the, from the most recent meetings and some recommendations. And the things that I was taught on how to deal with concussion, we now know we're wrong. You know, the old mushroom therapy, put them in a dark room for a week and don't have any, you know, now we know that right. we're getting them involved within, you know, 48, 72 hours, light exercise. So it's been an area that I've found has been understudied. And what's made it more dangerous, we have some people who think they know a whole lot about concussion because they know about TBI. And I would say I've been working in this field for many decades. Mm. I still think I'm not an expert in it, but I've tried to contribute and work with some really brilliant colleagues. But we got a long way to go. So, again, it's understanding the brain and what goes into alterations and how the way we think, feel and behave. Yeah, I think what I've got, you know, I had my um, my first podcast actually was with my my colleague, uh, uh, Eric Nussbaum, he a neurosurgeon, world renowned neurosurgeon. Um, I don't know if you know him personally. I Did, do. Yep. Great guy. 
one of the frustrations that we both share, and obviously he's even closer to that to that world than you know than I've been, is that over the last several decades, it doesn't seem like there's been a ton of progress as far as how we treat concussion and what is available for people. Because even in my practice, you know, over 18, I, I, I have seen people are getting the same advice when they go to their neurologist or, or they go to their, you know, trainer. I mean, they're still good. And, and, and to be honest with you, that dark room theory, that's still going. I mean, a lot of that is still happening. People yeah. are just told dark room, blue light glasses. It may or may not recover. We can't do anything. They'll send them, you know, they'll do some types of PT and things like that. What, what do you think is the next? I want to talk to you about a specific modality next, but what do you, what have you seen that you feel that there's a lot of potential hope for concussion sufferers? Because it really can ruin. I mean, they, it, I've seen so many people's lives ruined by concussion. Even absolutely. if it's subtle, it can ruin your life. Absolutely, because it's not so subtle. And again, they're functioning. So, so you're absolutely right. There is no kind of approved treatment. I always get annoyed when people say, well, they have a treatment for it. But what we do know is there can be hope. So we know things like avoiding bright sunlight, that that, mm -hmm. that can prolong that post-concussive period. We know the, the critically important role of sleep, if we're understanding the lymphatic yes. system. You know, I don't want to get into all that because I know we've got an audience of folks who might not be as familiar with that. But there are things that we can do, not only preventative, but after an athlete has sustained some brain impact, you know, whether they're in, quote, the concussion protocol. So, we, you know, we know about stress, hydration. Sleep, critically important. I'm not so sure that anything more than mm. a good, healthy diet. And it's going to be a slow recovery that you're not going to, it's yes. not like we're going to go do a surgery and you're going to be better in six weeks. And there is some interesting work. There's interesting work looking at modulating the brain. There's there's electromagnetic field. Yes. There's a number of people that, that were looking at the role of the Calpain 2 system. There's some good basic research going on in this. But I think the point you raised is the one that I'd really want the the listeners to understand mm. there is no definitive treatment, but there are things that we can do that can allow the, the recovery. There are things to avoid. You know, we talk about screens. I tell all my concussed pay, you know, you're, you're at your computer, cut it back. But instead of sitting this close, sit back because it's the old one over R squared, the intensity yes. of the rate. So just sit back, you know, when you're listening to your, to your earbuds and everyone's on those, all right, it doesn't mean you can't use them at all, but dial it back 20, 30% because we do know overstimulating the brain does seem to expand mm -hmm. that recovery yes. period from concussion. Mm -hmm. We don't want someone to feel like, well, you know, you're basically screwed. You know, it's, things are just going to get yeah. worse, but there are things that you can do. I've had athletes, you know, have had it, you know, take a semester off or take a, a lighter yes. load, you know, maybe drop organic chemistry, but doesn't mean you can't get back to that. So I think what we need to do is make sure first and foremost, we're knowledgeable about what we do know and what we don't know about concussion and then work with the athlete. We did a series of tapes for the National High School Coaches Association on training. So what should high school football coaches know about concussion? I don't want them to feel like they have to become concussion experts, mm -hmm. but what is their role in this process where they can work with the other members of the team to enhance the performance and the quality of life of these young athletes? That's a great answer. And and universally across the board, you know, I keep asking these questions on concussion and we're getting the same thing. And it, you know, it's interesting about concussion that I found that I mentioned it before. It's it's like the subtle stuff as physicians seeing patients who are not in the field 
it's interesting because it's like if I tell like my kid to look for, you know, like blue car, right? Then you start seeing those blue cars. You don't see them before that. So now that I'm looking for concussion and asking questions, I'm really blown away by how many concussions we, we've picked up recently and then tried to get them into the right hands. It slipped through because no one was asking the questions. And the other thing that I want the, the kind of the listeners to know is, you know, we always ask, well, what's, what are the statistics on concussion? The question is, how many concussions don't we know about that are out there walking around that are impaired? Absolutely. And it's this whole idea of raising awareness. Like I said, I, I made a video. This is by full disclosure. I don't make any money off it. It's available for YouTube. It's called Next Week's Game. And we've done it internationally, a number of film festivals. It's really about raising awareness for parents, for athletes, for coaches, and for physicians. I think one of the problems we see is we tended to look for what we learned in medical school or maybe graduate school about traumatic brain injury. And it's sometimes it's these more subtle symptoms. Plus, as we just said, some of the core symptoms don't come really manifest themselves weeks, months, years. The problem with, you know, you know, with the, the, the movie concussion, you know, Ridley Scott, Will Smith, you know, former Philadelphia. Yes. I think there were some things that were very good about it, but some things that I don't think were so good, like there were, you know, poor Mike Webster, you know, had been abused as a kid. Then there was a lot of substance issues. So it's, it's not just yes. the brain impact. I think it's an important piece of a bigger puzzle. So I, I think to your point and, and, and your description of it is really spot on is if we know what to look for, not what we want to call everything a potential concussion, but if we know some of those core symptoms and I tell my students, I just want you to just consider, we did a survey looking at PA students about their education in concussion. And then we looked at, at early state, we just published that about a year or so ago with medical students. Turns out those who are athletes are probably, they, they, they are statistically, because they've had to live with it a little more. And the, the, liter the good literature about concussion is relatively recent. You know, again, you can go back to yes. the 30s, you know, you can talk about, a lot about TBI and, you know, CTE, which is a, like a whole nother discussion. But I think what, what you've shared is what we've tried to do is, the edge, is be aware, know what to look for. It doesn't mean someone has to completely stop, but if you look for it as one piece of a bigger puzzle, it doesn't necessarily have to be the whole puzzle. It rarely is. But I think this awareness, and that's why shows like yours, I think are so important that people say, hey, yeah, I'm not going to, you know, every time something is related to concussion, but could concussion or brain impacts, could it have played a role? And if it has, how might that train change my intervention? And yeah. it might, it might not. So awareness and what to do and knowing kind of facts from, you know, well, I'll spend 500 bucks for a helmet. I'm never going to get concussed. That's nonsense. I mean, you know, can we get helmets that are safer? Yeah, the safest helmet is one that fits well. The biggest problem in high school sports is they wear, you know, it'd be like going out and playing a game and having your shoe be a, a two sizes too small or a size too big. That's not so good for, you know, ankle stability and, and lower joints. As an orthopod, you know this. So I think the awareness and what can we do to keep it in its proper perspective as a potential force in negatively affecting overall quality of life. Great answer. Great awareness for, for the audience. I just want people to really be cognizant of how much concussion there really is out there and how much of it is, is subtle. You know, one of the things that I've gotten really into, we're developing these wellness centers um, along with Dr. Sipple, who's our medical director. This is outside of, of my, my normal practice. But one of the things that we've been looking at is, is photobiomodulation 
transcranial photobiomodulation. Now, there's this yeah. study that came out of uh, Massachusetts General that I recently did something on LinkedIn talking about it, but it was a prospective randomized, you know, controlled study. It's like almost 70 patients and they they looked at, tra they, they built these special helmets and the transcranial red light, yeah. one group and the other group. And not only did they find in the transcranial red light group that they were clinically better at the six month mark, but that their brain tracks on MRIs were improved, the white matter tracks. What, what do you think about transcranial photobiomodulation potentially as something that could be a real tool in the toolbox to treat concussion symptoms? Well, I think what you said is true. It's, it's another tool in the toolbox. What we now know, so if you look at the world's largest neuroimaging assessment of sports concussion, mm -hmm. it's the Enigma group. Yes. And so what we know is that with concussion, you're not seeing those gray matter lesions that we might see, but it's, it's actually, it's a disruption in brain connectivity, how the brain kind of talks mm -hmm. and communicates with itself. So there's a, there's a fairly robust biology because now we have the tools that we didn't have when I was in medical school or resident or earlier in my career, we can actually look at the brain in a way we were never able to do. And that's, that's wonderful. I mean, the advances of neuroimaging, you know, mm -hmm. and understanding what's going on in the brain. So that whole tractology, again, those brain tracks mm -hmm. is really important. And I think there are a number of potential things out there that might help us improve that. And there's some good data out there. So what I say is let's keep a real close eye on this. Let's make sure it's good quality science. Mm -hmm. um, so there's not a placebo effect, but I think there is science. I mean, I was fortunate enough to do a Fulbright uh, on new sports concussion uh, back in 2018 at the University of Calgary, a just superb concussion research group and work with a, the, a neuroradiologist up there and uh, Carolyn Embry and a number of other folks who are really, you know, I think really just superb and first rate in studying this, particularly in youth. So this whole idea of, of near infrared and some of these things are coming out. What I'm hoping is that people don't look at it as kind of quote alternative medicine or just the way I think it ties into understanding what's the pathophysiology, what's causing this and what can we do to potentially right. modify it. So I'm a big fan of, I think this is being done the right way with good science, having it be placebo controlled. So it's not just, you know, as Benson would have said, a placebo effect, but I think there's really something there. And I think what it does, it also has the secondary effect of it's not just, well, just suck it up. You know, we, yes. we glamorize people coming back and playing injured. No, this is like, Hey, if you've got a broken bone and you can see it, you're, you know, people aren't going to say, you know, you're a wimp for not getting in and playing. I think it affects some of this gladiator mentality. And I think we've gotten away from that. There's still a little bit ways to go, but I think we've really made great progress in the world of sport. So I am a fan of these things. I think we need to, to do it the right way. And I think we are. Do the studies. Look at it. It's, it's not about selling something, but it's about understanding how these interventions might be correcting an abnormality that's then in brain connectivity, brain functioning, that's leaning to these symptoms that we see that oftentimes go missed. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think on the, um, you know, the transcript, like the, the, the near infrared stuff, you know, only a small amount penetrates the skull. Pretty fascinating right. stuff. I and look very, at some and, of- And not very deep as well, right? 3%, yeah, 3% in the, in the Harvard study, only 3% penetrates the skull. But, you know, there's a, some, like, there's more powerful lasers like Dr. Henderson's using with some of these NFL players. His data is, is, is pretty, you know, outstanding in some of these players. But the interesting thing is, and this is something I actually talked about with Nussbaum, it's so 
interesting to sometimes then go back to some of the stuff we learned in medical school and drill down. And what's been fascinating to me is, and my wife only allows me to say, I've said this on other podcasts. She only allows me one time a day to say the word mitochondria because it's driving her nuts. <laughs> I, that's all I talk about in our house with my kids. I'm like mitochondria, that's the key to everything. But it's interesting the way that that near infrared works as penetrating that mitochondrial wall and then potentially improving those pumps without getting into all the details details because this part of it, if you really drill down to it in the research that that I've done and again I'm no expert at 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 this stuff I'm 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 learning from from people like you but those pumps get disrupted instantly when you have when you have that traumatic injury and and potentially repairing them through you know near infrared and infrared type light is it's just fascinating that that science is starting to get to a point where we may be able to offer you know, different modalities. And certainly like in our wellness clinics, we've been using it and we've seen really good results. But again, we're not doing it in a controlled fashion. We're just seeing anecdotal phenomenal improvements in people's concussion symptoms. But but again, it has to be done by the Harvards and the other institutions that are looking at these things in a very controlled fashion because there's other factors. And, and you're right, that placebo factor could certainly because people be, believe they they're going to get better, they they may get better. The other thing I would say is you brought it up before is this transcranial magnetic stimulation, which I'm not as familiar with. But I have a guy, Dr. Sunder, coming on I think on March 24th to talk. He does a lot of that work in his clinic, and I'm really fascinated. I can't wait to pick his brain on this transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is a whole other topic that oh, I yeah. really never heard of before I went down the yeah. rabbit hole. Yeah. So Keithy is, is, a, is a good friend and a collaborator. I know what he trained at Pittsburgh, you know, one of the finest departments of yeah. psychiatry. He's really done it the right way. He's doing work here in Palm Springs and he just opened clinics in India. I think what you said is, is really so important is that if we understand what might be causing it, then we can come up with treatments. I use the analogy, if we don't understand what's causing something, the analogy would be, well, let me close my eyes. Let me hold up a pistol, shoot it in the air and hope a, and hope a, you know, a duck flies in front of the bullet. You know, that's, it <laughs> might happen, but it's always a little bit better if we understand. And I, this idea of mitochondria, if we understand what is mitochondria, it, you know, it's, it's the energy driving force. And we go back right. to what we learned in, you one in medical school or in, you know, even in high school, that the role of mitochondria. So I think what we need to do is, you know, inflammation, you know, where the, there's a lot of good work going on and not inflammation like I got an infection because I got right. a cut, but what's going on in the brain. So we're mm -hmm. talking about the neuroinflammasome as being important in depression and anxiety. I think it plays an important role in concussion. You know, what's happening in the brain that we're having cognitive difficulty, we can't remember, we're having some mood lability. So the more we understand about what might be leading to these symptoms, then we can step back and say, okay, whether it's dealing with mitochondria, the microbiome plays it, you know, there's a whole lot going on, you know, on the role of the gut microbiome. And, and people say, well, what kind of a craziness is that? But now we know that the gut microbiome plays a role in some of these things that we are now demonstrating are really important in regards to mood and thinking and ultimately behavior. It's interesting because, you know, uh, Dr. Nussbaum is also, he's, He's enamored by the microbiome. I didn't know that about him. And he's my partner. I didn't know that about him until I asked him the question on the podcast. And we did it, we did it in person. And afterwards, we spent about an hour talking about microbiome health. I did not know that that is something that he's so passionate about. 
And people don't know, like all the production of serotonin, you know, 95% is produced in, in the gut. And if you disrupt these mechanisms by having dysbiosis, man, you're, you're going down a different path. And I know there's a ton, a ton of work being done, for example, on like anxiety syndromes and, and, and depression and things and looking at like ketogenic diets which, which some people are huge proponents of some people are not. And it, you know, there, there's, there's varying and all the, all these different specialties obviously are going to have different opinions. That's what makes, you know, our medical community so vibrant and so great is that, that, that we kind of fight it out until we, we start seeing what works and what doesn't work. But yeah, that this, the concept of the microbiome is, it, it is fascinating. I even started going down, like looking at microbiome health in, in these symptoms, like in these women that have all these horrible, horrible cystitis type symptoms with no findings. Mm -hmm. And and you look at the, the urinary microbiome and how that plays into these devastating, you know, syndromes that they, I mean, that ruins your life, right? Having constant cystitis, like they never get a break all day long. They're on meta, they try everything. And so maybe, you know, titrating that. So, I mean, again, I'm, I'm going down a whole different path. We need like yeah, 20 no, no, hours to talk the, about this stuff. And that's why it's so important because the more we understand, and if it fits a particular model, I think we have to be cautious that the public doesn't view this as a way to sell a new gimmick, you know, to Correct. sell a new, you know, supplement or whatever, because that's the, and I, I think the internet, this is part of the two-edged sword with the internet. As we all know, the internet isn't, peer reviewed. You could put anything you want on the internet. It could be fun. And the general public doesn't know, you know, who do I believe? You know, if some actor said it's good, well, did they go to medical school or do they have medical training, or whatever. So this is part of the balance that we have with social media, with the internet, you know, there's stuff that's out there that's good. I think what we need to do is exactly what you just said is how does this make sense and where might we intervene? It's another tool in the toolbox. I believe the mic, the gut micro, I've been sold on it. Chuck Rezan, a colleague of mine, we published some stuff together, has done a lot of, and there are many people who've done really good work on this. But it's so so why might it work? Again, I think we're going to see a whole lot more on this idea of, of CNS inflammation. And again, people think of an infection like, well, I just take an antibiotic. Well, there's some pretty good data on the role of ceftriaxone and substance abuse. The mm -hmm. problem is when you take it by mouth, it's too big. You can't get into the brain. So the studies have mainly been done in animal models. But you're so right that we need to keep an open mind. And how does it fit the model? And if it doesn't fit and it's working, then maybe we need to rethink our models. So whether it's mitochondrial functioning, whether it's gut microbiome, you know, a whole host of things, it, you know, they say, well, which one's right? Well, maybe they're all right. They're all pieces of this bigger puzzle. And what can we do? But I think keeping an open mind and doing the good work, you know, that you're doing as a clinician and that researchers are doing and listening to athletes and coaches and the community at large, then we have a chance to make a substantial difference moving forward. PTSD and the way that it ties in. So a lot of these people that are, you know, that have more TBI and, and major concussion, they also get into the PTSD. So there, there's this overlap, right? There's some overlap, but there's so many reasons to have PTSD. We could talk about PTSD for an entire episode, but really what I wanted to ask you about is in the elite athletes, because they're under so much pressure, when they sustain a significant failure, so they, they let's just say they lose in the gold medal round or, you know, they, they, they fall off of the, the balance beam or, you know, they're part of the World Cup games and they miss a penalty shot. Have you seen like severe PTSD, like true PTSD symptoms develop that are hard to treat in these elite athletes? Because it's not talked about their PTSD. Absolutely. I mean, and you can look at the psychiatric criteria 
for PTSD, and it fits all of those. They have, you know, nightmares. They ha they have a hard time relaxing. They have flashbacks. You know, you know, missing it. So you're absolutely correct. You know that we can see that. One of the things I think with PTSD, and it is such a fascinating. It's kind of one of those things where a an emotional event can trigger something that has very strong and significant biology, you know, can't sleep. And then the not being able to sleep leads to, you know, the development of other neurocognitive deficits because we know good deep sleep, good restful sleep is really important for brain health. Mm -hmm. So so that it's all really interconnected. And uh, I've had people ask me about this. Uh, in fact, we we've written about, you know, the role of certain forms of psychotherapy in dealing with athletic PTSD, that it not isn't just part of war neurosis, what it was originally written about, you know, right. going back or more years, but exactly the same thing. One of the things I think it's important for the audience to understand is when we're looking at any major stressor, physical or emotional, there, there was a guy named Hans Selye, who, you know, he was like the father of stress medicine. And what he talked about was with stress, and he did it largely with laboratory animals and then got in humans, is when you have a chronic significant stress, physical or emotional, there's kind of one of three things that happen. Either one, the stress goes away, and which you're okay. You know, I can start. The problem with PTSD is it doesn't go away because you're having the nightmares. You know, it, it affects something where it's there, and that's the PTSD. Or you develop a better sense of resilience, how to deal with it. So you say, okay, I want, but, you know, this is going to help me in the next event, or it's going to help me be a better coach. So when I, the people coming from me, so this way of increasing resilience and, you know, a, a way of dealing with, so that this stress becomes more of what we used to call a new yeah. stress. Or if none of those happen and the stress continues, what Celia said is you die. Well, I think we're not having people who are dropping dead of this, but I think it, we die as far as our overall physical and emotional health. So I absolutely believe, and this is where we're working in mean, the NFL. I give them credit as a consultant. I'm not employed by the NFL. And I know a lot of people have a lot of issues with them, but for whatever reason, they are concerned with how an athlete's coming back mm -hmm. from injury. The, the athletes who've, you know, who have retired PTSD, absolutely from a sports perspective. And some of those same things that we know can be beneficial in a non-athlete that we, for example, are using in, in soldiers that can work there. And I think your awareness of that is spot on. And that what we need to do is sit down and have an athlete feel comfortable enough to talk about, you know, what was it, you know, and say, you know, doc, you know, I haven't had a good night's sleep. I'm in bed a lot, but I wake up and I'm, you know, I'm wasted or I'm finding I got to have a couple of drinks just to relax. Or, you know, I, you know, I just feel kind of crappy about myself. I'm not motivated. I feel like I'm a failure. You know, I said, well, you know, you've been a world-class athlete. So it's a classic textbook athletic presentation of PTSD that if not addressed, I believe they're more often than not will lead to other problems with functioning in life down the road. And some of them quite significant. Some patients that undergo major surgeries end up having PTSD because of their experience. And the, I mean, there's just, it's everywhere, right? PTSD everywhere around us. We, it's just like concussion. You have to look for it. It's so fascinating. When you are evaluating somebody for PTSD, let's say some of these scenarios you talked about, can't sleep, can't do this, can't do that. Are you more in that camp of more non-medication management, medication management, or is it, is it a combination? Because I know that there are these camps that develop 
everywhere, just like the weight yeah. loss camps. There's guys like, oh, there's drugs for everything. And other people like never take a drug ever for any, you know? So where are yeah. you somewhere where you just think that it's more of, it's an integrate, I'm an integrative guy. So I, I, yeah. I'm imagining it's no, that, integrative. No, and how do you start on those patients? I always try to do it non-pharmacologically. The body is meant to heal itself. That what we're doing is we're essentially buying time, whether it's an antibiotic where we're buying time to let the, the, the body's own immune system kick in, or you know, we're we're buying time because I think we sometimes underappreciate some of the side effects and some of them are fairly subtle. But the question then becomes the level of impairment. So if someone is acutely suicidal, uh, yeah, you know, and I think I can get them stabilized, you know, with uh, TMS or whatever it might be. I'm not here to promote any, but I think a good clinician says, you know, if someone comes into the emergency room and they're bleeding out and they have a sprained ankle, well, maybe you take care of the bleed and then you deal with the ankle later. So uh, I'm of the belief that I, I like non-pharmacologic interventions, but I am happy that we have medications that may be helpful. And I think we have to use them cautiously and wisely. I am not an anti-drug person at all, but use them wisely. So I always say my rule of thumb is what's the lowest dose that's effective for the shortest period of time? And I'm hoping the lowest dose is zero. But it's a tool in the toolbox that needs to be there. And hopefully it's the educated physician, clinician working with the patient understanding that mm -hmm. says, let's use the we, we've talked about sleep. We all know, we know without doubt that there are medications, disease, as we all call them. Yeah, they'll help you get to sleep. But we also know that it's not the same quality of sleep. Correct. People should not be on these drugs for months on end, that we actually do pay a price. Like just falling asleep, it's really the quality of sleep is more important oftentimes than the quantity up to a Correct. point. So, so people are, all right, maybe we'll, maybe we'll use these just to break that cycle so you can get back to a normal sleep cycle but sleep that's induced through a medication or alcohol or anything else is never going to be of the health promoting quality of natural sleep. So I, I like to take a more, quote, more natural approach. Yes. And I, people think, well, you know, that's home yet. No, because at the end of the day, if the body can't do it itself, if you can't muster up an immune system, deal with an infection, you're going to be dead at some point. You know, we, we try to buy time with our antibiotics. So a uh, long winded answer, but I like. The more can what would we might call conserve. I don't think they're conservative at all. I think really focusing on lifestyle issues can be a very uh, you know a fairly aggressive approach, but aggressive in a positive way. And again, I, I want to leave this point just so we don't miss it when we're talking about exercise and sleep. It's got to be fun, you know. No yeah. one says uh, you know we get, you know thou shalt do this. You know, stop eating this, start eating it. But people, we don't like to be told what to do. We might do it out of fear, but to me. When I talk about the important role of exercise in mental health and physical health, I always talk about it can't just be, it's got to be fun exercise. If you enjoy going to the gym because you meet up with your buddies or the way you feel after you do a couple of good sets or whatever it might be, you're more likely to do it. And in fact, if you get some level of happiness and joy from it, it's got a more positive physiologic effect. It's not just the mental. Use drugs when you have to, and not as a total last resort, but going to a more wellness oriented, lifestyle psychiatry, lifestyle medicine approach, and then using medications when they're, I mean, we certainly wouldn't start someone on insulin who is pre-diabetic or who had type two diabetes, you know? Yeah. Should we not use insulin? No, we use it if someone needs, you know, the you know, beta cells in the pancreas aren't doing their thing anymore. Right. But the, the appropriate use 
of medication, but understanding why, not a knee-jerk reaction, like, oh, if you got this, take this, but understanding what is it doing and how might it help, and then close monitoring. I think too often yes. we'll give somebody a three-month supply and they come, a lot of stuff can happen in three months. So I'm not a big fan. You said I did ADHD research in clinic for a long time. I was never a fan. Well, here's a, here's a month's supply and I'll see you in a month. There's a lot of stuff that can happen within the body, within the mind, within, you know, the, the, the world in which they're living. So I think medication should be appropriately monitored. We should be on the lowest dose that's effective for the shortest period of time. And we don't know what the answer to that is. The shortest period of time in the story of insulin is probably for life. You know, you're not going to wean yourself off insulin if you're, you know, if you're an insulin-dependent diabetic. Mm. I like the fact that we are now in medicine, I think more and more looking at it's not just you know, better living through chemistry, psychopharmacology. I like the fact that we continue to have some advances there, but what is the role of that piece of a puzzle in what hopefully is a much larger multifaceted, many more pieces other than just medication? It is a wonderful breath of fresh air to hear exactly what you're saying about limited use about of, of medication. You know, we took pharmacology class. Actually, it was one of my favorite. I mean, it's it's fascinating yeah, what I, has I, happened. I, I was fascinated by it. It's yeah. fascinating. I mean, I'm starting to read more about it now again. Just it's fascinating. You know, as a spine surgeon, there's a limited number of medications, you know, we give out. Unfortunately, one of them right. are opioids, which is a whole other discussion. But I think that, you know, just limiting medications in, in all aspects and thinking about other ways, wellness ways and preventative ways, like you said, utilizing non-pharmacologic means to get people better. And then in emergency situations or when you really can't and you really need to as, as a clinician, you know, do that. Because like I said at the beginning, Patients are on all these meds and sometimes they're on autopilot. So they start with two and then they're on 14. And if yeah. you ask them, they have no idea what they're on. And half the time, no one knows why they're on all these meds. We, I, I notice this as a surgeon, sometimes when they come and the anesthesiologist is like, you know, your patient's on 16 meds. And I said, yeah, I know that, but their, you know, their doctor approved them for surgery and apparently they you know, they got a clean bill of health. So we'll, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go that direction. So I think all of us as a community really need to just really think about judicious use of medications. Like in our clinic, we've made a huge change in the 18 years I've been there in the way that we manage opioids on patients and have very strict criteria for who gets it and who doesn't and who gets transferred out to, you know, to pain management clinics and things, because obviously we don't want to be part of that problem. And, and we've seen that. The other thing is, I love the fact that you did one of these with natural remedies, because I'll tell you, these labels of alternative medicine What's alternative about microbiome health? What's alternative about, you know, like dietary? It's not alternative. It's just Western medicine, pharmacology, interventions, the stuff I do, you know, the guys that do injection, all these interventions. It's just one type of medicine. You know, meditation is medicine. Yoga is medicine. Of course. The, what we eat is food is medicine, right? One of my favorite things, food as medicine. I, I just love the guys that are out there pushing that. So thanks for bringing that up because these labels of it's natural, it's alternative. It's not alternative. It's just something different. And one of the examples I gave is I said, if we have like a, like a, a donut, and instead, we just decide, you know what, I'm not going to eat that. I'm going to eat a banana. You just say, well, I'm going to eat a banana. You don't say, I'm going to have an alternative. Like, it, it's just, yeah. it's a banana. It is what it is. So, you know, what we're talking about, it's yeah, just right. what it is. It's a treatment. And it's a terrific analogy because 
we put labels on things and then it's like we have camps, like you're for or against it. I remember for a while, I was right. like, are you a biological psychiatrist? And I said, no, I'm a psychiatrist. You know, I, <laughs> hopefully I can understand the, you know, the role. And, and I think medications clearly do have an important role. I mean, I've seen patients whose lives have been saved by being on appropriate doses of antipsychotics, of uh, antidepressants. So it's, it's you know, I, I call it my three bears analogy when it comes to we don't want it too hot. I eat too much or too cold, never use when we should. But what's just right. And for me, I think understanding that there are other it's just unfortunately, it's so much easier to write another script than to work with getting somebody off it. And I think um, certainly in my field of psychiatry, I've seen one of the real one of the real pet peeves of mine in dismay is over the years, it's psychiatrists were being relegated to the role just you know, the pill pushers, the Medicaid, we'll send them to the psychiatrist, you know, go see your therapist, but then go see your psychiatrist. I think we need to work together as a team. And again, get back to what pharmacology should be that even though it is sometimes more difficult to get somebody off, I think that's a healthier way to go. So not like you should never use it, but use them appropriately. You know, don't use them when they're yep. not in. The, and if they are indicated, what what endpoints are we looking for? What are the cardinal symptoms that we want to see improvement in? So we know whether we maybe need to up the dose or lower that. Just serum blood levels is better than nothing. So I think this is hopefully something that will continue to change because the reliance on medication as opposed to relying on living a healthier lifestyle, dealing with stress in a way other than, you know, taking a benzodiazepine if you're anxious or taking an SSRI if you're sad. I mean, you know, antidepressants aren't anti-sad drugs. You know, they deal with some very specific things. And the more we educate each other and learn how to use these, I think the better off we're going to be in promoting wellness and quality of life. That's wonderful. You know, I just want to touch on on the the opioid crisis again. I would need you for about three three four hours to you know to talk about that. You know, I know uh, you've done uh, a, a great work also in conjunction with Dr. Bloom, who I'm actually having on the show. I'm excited to pick his brain. I mean, really, the father of the reward deficiency okay. syndrome and understanding the genetics. But 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 Ken is uh, is an absolutely fascinating guy, and I think you'll have a fun time with him on the show. Yeah, it'll, it'll be fun. So I was going to ask you, can you, so on this reward deficiency syndrome, which I've done a lot of reading on, listen, you guys have spent your whole lives. It's just like if you were to read on scoliosis surgery, you know, it, there's only so much you're going to get in, you know, in a week of of doing research, but this reward deficiency you know, syndrome theory. And I know some people kind of push back on it saying it's too yeah. simplistic, whatever yeah. in going there. But the thing that fascinates me about it is that it's it's interesting because if you look at just the different genes that we're born with, it just goes into the way in the, these dysfunctions. And from my research, there's different areas that you can target down the pathway, you know, from the way serotonin works to ultimately, you know, the release of dopamine kind of down that pathway. How much of the reward deficiency syndrome, that that pathway, how do you do you use that to target? pharmacology on your patients or the way you you treat you know people that are addicted or or, or kind of going down the opioid because i know it's for everything right it's you see for obesity all, all kinds of of obsessive compulsive disorders and, and all kinds of things so can you talk a little bit about that I, obviously i'm going to have sure. you know bloom on sure. but but a little bit about it and and, and kind of how you use that like in practice so yeah i've been involved with ken published quite a number of papers with him I think what we're talking about with the reward deficiency syndrome to take maybe one step backward is what it's talking about is there are individuals who are at greater risk. We know mm -hmm. this and all. We know people are at greater risk for developing cancer, you know, that there's a genetic link. And maybe 
part of and 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 Ken has worked a lot on a test, you know, that that he talks about the GARS test, which mm-hmm. is so help identify people who might be at increased risk for having some of these issues down the road. I think what the RDS for me, it's looking about the important role of having a balance. And this I think is true in all of medicine that we talk about homeostasis, that's mm-hmm. proper balance. So if we get cold, we shiver, it generates heat. If we get hot, we sweat, it evaporates, it cools us off. That the body is really meant, and, and there are many backup systems to that, to have this balance. So when we upset that balance, like if we can't sweat, if we can't shiver, then we run into issues. So RDA, and Ken will get into this, it's understanding that there's genetic reasons for this. It's not just a flaw in one's moral fiber. It's about getting this balance. The body always wants a balance. And as an orthopod, you clearly see this. You know, when if something is overdeveloped compared to something, it's that lack of balance that leads to certainly orthopods as well as neurosurgeons. But I think for me, what I like is having people understand that we're talking about opioids. And I go back along, I was on the LA County pain team back in the early 1980s. And we were looking at, we just developed a project at Western U where I'm at now, number of years working with the California Dental Association. Turns out dentists, it's been a real issue with what they do is their standard practice. You know, kid goes in for molar surgery or to get their wisdom teeth extracted. They were giving them too high a doses that they probably didn't need of opioids. And for a certain population, increasing the risk of maybe having issues down the road. So now every dentist in the state of California goes through, and I, I know there are other parts of the country as well, on just core education. How do you manage pain associated with it? Do you have to go right to an opioid? Can you use non steroidals? Can you use other uh, analgesics. So the opioid crisis is very complex, but unfortunately, a lot of it, we have to look back into the mirror as providers. Yes. Were we using these drugs appropriately? Should we never use opioids? No, I think there's absolutely a place for them, but it should be fairly limited. And after a really thought, it shouldn't be a knee jerk. Well, you know, someone had, you know, their left molar taken out. Let's put them on a couple, three days, or they were even on it longer than they needed to be so that there is a downside. So the opioid crisis a lot of stuff going on with that. And again, we could do a whole few hours on that. But I think it gets back to what we were just discussing is that this is a pretty powerful tool. Let's only pull it out. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, you're not going to kill a fly on the wall with a 22 caliber gun. You know, you hopefully start with a with a fly swatter. I think that what we need to do is understanding, not just have it be a need to, and that there is a downside and can be a significant downside. And it's more so in some than others. So like I tell people, caffeine. My wife can drink a cup of coffee and be asleep in 10 minutes. If I have a cup of caffeinated coffee after two, three in the afternoon, up till 2 a.m. And it's been <laughs> that way for my mom and we never had. So we all have different genetic vulnerabilities. Yes. And I think part of what the, you know, what Ken talks about with the RDS is that there are these genetic things that are affected by non-genetic things, epigenetics, kind of, you know, stresses in our life and a whole bunch of other things. So uh, I like the idea of destigmatizing it. And getting back to what I believe is a such a critical part of health and wellness, and that's having the right balance. You don't want to be in bed 20 hours a day, but three hours a day probably isn't enough. You know, it's you know, you don't want to be guzzling, you know, six gallons of water a day. You know, there's like, but what's the proper amount? And as we get further down the road in personalized and precision medicine, what's right mm-hmm. for you? What's the right workout for you, given where you are now with your age and everything else? That's where I'd like us to, to get. You know, so it's not just that knee jerk. And and I think you'll have a lot of fun with Ken, but the idea of balance in life, whether it's as an orthopod, as a general internist, 
as a psychiatrist, that to me is a very important concept. And anything we can do to allow the body to get back into a natural balance is going to be health promoting. Getting that balance, but trying to do it as naturally as we can. What's what's fascinating that's about that's what's going to sustain yeah. it. If it's not done naturally, yes. it won't be sustained. Because as soon as you stop the drug, you're going back. So if we don't get that balance, it's not going to be a long-term fix or improvement. And we don't want to see people on drugs lifelong unless you know diabetes, insulin be the one, you know, there might be some others in there, but that the goal should be quality of life is about can we get the body back where maybe the body just needs a little bit of help with it, as opposed to being dependent on, and I'm not talking about drug dependence per se, but having to have all these medications. Sometimes we start using drugs to treat side effects of other drugs they're on. I talk about that all the time. It's these downstream effects. I mean, these these people with this poor metabolic health, then they're put on drugs and then that screws up another system and, and it goes on and on and on, but yet we're not really getting to the root causes of what it is. Now, whether that is turning on their epigenetics or whether it, it, it's their new, whatever. It's a, it's it's really a combination of so many different factors, which makes it fascinating. Like I just, it, it's, it's hard to wrap the one's mind around how all the systems need to be in balance in order for the machine to work properly, right? Like anything, like if your car, if just one, a couple parts of your car are off balance, you might not be able to drive out of the lot. The rest is in perfect shape. It looks perfect. Most beautiful car ever, but you can't, it doesn't drive. And I think with age, that's where, you know, we're living longer. We talked about this Mm -hmm. earlier about quality versus quantity of life. But as we age, we know that the body's ability to handle it, you know, a 20 year old, a 30 year old, a 40 year old will be able to handle things differently than a 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 year old. So understanding with aging that certain things are normal, should we be treating as pathology as a normal part of aging? Aging isn't a disease. Uh, you know, if it is, it's a disease I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to have, you know, but, <laughs> but I, I think it's understanding that context and knowing that we're going to treat an adolescent differently than we treat a young adult. But the brain, it changes as we get older. We can't tolerate things that we were able to tolerate. Right. I mean, that's why I think, you know, you see pro athletes, you know, by the time you're in your early thirties, you're getting to be an old man or an old woman mm-hmm. because the body, it's still a healthy body, but, but, you know, the body changes as we age. It's not a disease. It's just a fact of, of life. So there's so much right on the important issue of wellness throughout the life cycle requires yes. an understanding of maintaining a healthy life balance, whether it's nutrition, exercise, stress management, social relationships. I mean, you know, our own Surgeon General, you know, Murthy came out, he said, you know, the number one public uh, health issue was loneliness. 100%. You know, not as, a, as an emotional, but, it, but as, as part of, of health and what it does to our, you know, to our core physiology. So I think we're making strides. I think podcasts like this that get out there have people thinking what should I be asking? I don't think we should be preaching to people, thou shalt do this, this, and this. Yes. So let's be thinking about this. Let's keep an open mind to ways to intervene other than what's the next medication to use. Use them when they're indicated. But to me, the goal should be, what's the end game to get off these? And again, some, some illnesses, chronic diseases, you might need to take them. But I'm always happiest when I can either do the work to get someone off and have them be at the same level or hopefully even a higher level of functioning, not being exposed to the meds. Because meds aren't evil, but using meds improperly, it's not the meds problem, it's the education of the, of the provider. So we need to be thoughtful and think this through. And how does this fit in to an overall treatment strategy, as you've mentioned? Yes, we kind of 
you get towards the end here, you know, on the, I love this, this idea. We touched on it before a little bit, but I love this idea of lifestyle medicine, lifestyle psychiatry, just looking at the totality kind of of how people are living their lives and making sure that everything is really in balance. And you've touched on so many like amazing, I mean, I think this is going to be like wildly educational. I'm going to pull people to the side and say, you got to listen to Dr. Barron talk about these things because I mean, you're saying it in such an easy to digest format and it's just, it's so spot on to, to what people just need to hear because they're confused, right? They're seeing commercials on TV for every drug under the sun there. You, you hit on it. They're going on social media and they're getting bombarded. Oh, this product. Oh, if you take this, if you take this, you know, this, this vitamin, you'll be cured. And if you do this, this therapy, you'll be perfect. And there's just so much information. And the truth is just coming to, you know, to get homeostasis and balance. I would just, one thing that you were just talking about is like getting people off of medications as a thing. There's a guy on LinkedIn. I, I'm, I'm not connected. It's, it's interesting. He's, he's a physician and his tagline is, I got to go back and find out who it is because it's just brilliant. I just read it the other day. Good physicians know how to use medicines. Great physicians know how to take people off of medicines. I could not agree more. And again, it's not to be anti-pharma. And the other thing, and again, I know we're just about out of time, but the thing I love about lifestyle medicine and lifestyle psychiatry, it's not something you need to have the world's expert in it. These are things that you can do with yourself for yourself. I can identify what's a fun way to get some exercise. Not like I got to go jog because my doc told me or, you know, but I, I can take control. We've done lifestyle psychiatry programs in the jungles of Borneo. Just a year and a half ago, I lived there with my wife. We went over there and, you know, we, we would get, the, you know, people in the doing healthy lifestyle, you know, psychiatric. And we, you know, they two psychiatrists for two and a half million people and nobody out in the jungle. But the thing I like about it is it gives you a sense of taking control of your life, not feeling guilty about it. But what can I do to live a healthier, more enjoyable, happier life? There's nothing the matter. With seeking happiness, you know, if you only get happy when you're getting stoned, well, then we got some issues there. But <laughs> but seeking ha health and happiness and feeling good about it and knowing that I've taken control of this, I'm not worrying about having a, what my doctor tells me, what's said on the internet. But I know I'm getting a good restful night's sleep. If I'm socially connected, if I have some ways of dealing with all the stresses in life, you know, people say, mm -hmm. "What's a stress-free state?" I said, "Well, there's one stress-free state. It's called death." As far as I know, we're not stressed when we're dying. But otherwise, you know, the world is stressed. How can we deal with that? How can we take control? And there's some simple things that you don't need to be have access to the world's greatest medicines, but that we can do that can help promote that. And that's why I think this idea of wellness, of seeking joy and happiness mm -hmm. in a healthy way, because that is maybe one of the most powerful biological interventions we have. Last thing, and, and one of the things that is sort of disheartening to me, and one of the things that played into me doing this, other than what we talked about before, people really not understanding, you know, the damage they do to their systems, exposed to different toxins and food types and things like that. Again, each one of those is an entire podcast, right? We could just talk about like even like 5G towers and potentially how that can affect, you know, cellular health. But one of the things that that honestly, I don't have another word, but it's heartbreaking to me is when I see people that are, to me, they're still young. They're in their 50s or, 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 or 40. I mean, they're young. These are young people in today's, with, with modern medicine, you're young. You've got a long time unless you die of some, some right. other thing. And this is, a, I think, a great question to ask you know, a world-renowned psychiatrist. 
How do we get them out of thinking that that's it? They're supposed to be this way. And you know that many of them just come in and they're on all these meds. They don't feel well. They might not have a syndrome. You know, they might not have a defined disease. They might not have full-blown diabetes or they might not be morbidly obese. They might not have any of those things, but they, they feel they're miserable but they feel like that's the norm. They're like, well, you know, I'm I'm 52 years old. This is just the way it is. Or I'm 62 or I'm 42. My friends are like this. We're all miserable. You know, after a certain age, it's over. And I'm just going to have this existence for the next 30 years, pretty much just not feeling well, being miserable and, and, and seeking some kind of medical care, most of which is going to be through pharmacological intervention. What do you tell those people? Because when I see them and they're just, they've, they've given up, I'm like, it's pretty early to give up. You got a long, long way to go. What I do is I try to challenge it in a way without being challenging. So I say, you know, you really seem demoralized with this. And, and I can understand it. You know, maybe you're not, can't play the golf you used to play or you can't swing a tennis school, whatever it might be. I can, and you know, it not it a shame that we're so youth oriented about this, but then I'll say, but you know what? I think there's some things that maybe we might want to talk about or have you think about, it. you don't have to come in psychotherapy for this, but there's really some good emerging stuff that the quality of life is important. And you know what I'm interested in? I'm interested in you being happy. I'm interested in you enjoying your life. And you know what? Maybe you're not going to, you know, be a, you know, a scratch golfer, or you're, you're, you're not going to be able to swim two miles in the gym, but you know what? Life and enjoying life. This is something that you can do if you choose. It's your choice. It seems to me that you're kind of down on things and as your doctor, as your someone who cares about you and your health, I want us to see if there's maybe another alternative here. And why aren't you feeling this way? I mean, I want you to be able to enjoy those things in life. And I want you to think about things. What is it you really want to do? Whether it's engaging with your kids or your friends or whoever it might be. So you're right. The autopilot for some of these people is, yep, it's, you know, ball game's over. I'm just, you know, sitting around waiting to die. I think challenging that and telling people, no, you know what? With age sometimes comes wisdom, the ability to appreciate, highlighting that aging is not a disease. Yeah, maybe your vision's not quite so good. Maybe you don't hear quite so well, but does that mean that you're blind to your death? That you bring a perspective that life brings in, the ability to share. I often talk about Eastern religions where they really revere aging, you know, and, and we're a very youth-oriented Western, certainly in the U.S., you know, everything's about youth. And, you know, strength and but sometimes it's the wisdom that age comes with. So I think you're right. I think identifying that this is a way that we in the health profession as a physician, as a psychiatrist, whatever, we need to be looking at what goes into a quality of life. It's not just having a heart that's beating 72 beats a minute or a BP that's 120 over 80 or a blood sugar that's 75. You know, we go all, all the biomarkers that we measure. But what can we do to evaluate? our patient is feeling and enjoying and having some level of happiness and joy in their life. And what can we do to make that better? And I think we add to it by not asking, hey, are you still enjoying it? No, nah, yeah, it's been yes. a while. Why, why not? What are you doing for yourself? What are you doing to go out and have fun? When the, when's the last time you went out and had some fun? Nah, it's been a while. I'm an, old, I'm an old guy. I'm an old lady now. Bull. You know what? Do you want to still do? So let's talk about what you can do to go out and have fun and enjoy it. Because when you're having fun and enjoying things, your life's going to be better. And the people who care about you, if you can't do it for yourself right away, do it for them because they're going to feel better when they see mom or dad or, you know, whoever, Hey, geez, you, you look like your old self. You're feeling, you're going to make them feel better. So if you can't do it for yourself right now, 
Maybe you can start by doing it for them. And if people are to the point where they have no capacity to enjoy anymore, then we got to start thinking about dealing with people that I work with. Maybe there's some other things going on because the disease of depression, not just feeling sad or demoralized, right, um, is out there. It's a real disease. So, you know, that's more like, you know, you're not pre-diabetic, but maybe you're getting to the point where we do need some mm-hmm. other interventions. But I think that that challenge, not allowing people or challenging them not to say, you know, do you still want to feel, ha- yeah, I'd like to, but I can't. Hey, let's work together to fix that. Mm-hmm. If someone says, no, I don't deserve to feel happy. You know, I've not done that. Yeah, that, that, then we're talking about another intervention. Yes, and maybe yes. TV, Dr. Sunder will talk about TMS, uh, you know, an RTMS yeah. when, when you have that next podcast with him. That's a great answer. And I think that from a kind of a mental, emotional standpoint, which is what you're talking about, I love that answer. I'm going to actually use that. I'm going to, I'm going to, now that I have this recorded, I know exactly what to, to, to tell my, because I say it in my way, but you, you, you've said it, it's just amazing. Getting them out of that, 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 that vicious cycle, that downward spiral, because if you don't feel well mentally and emotionally, it then feeds into what you eat how you eat it, how much Absolutely. sugar intake, Absolutely. you don't exercise. And it's, it's that you that's a, that's the vicious cycle. We want to get them into what you're talking about, which is the virtuous cycle where they start feeling mentally better. Yeah. I'm excited. You know what? I'm going to do this for my grandkid. And then all of a sudden they're at the, you know, they're taking their walks and they're, they're eating yeah. healthier and they're, they're trying, you know, different things to make their, their, their overall health better. And I love the fact that you hit on it. It's got to be fun. And it is amazing if they can do it in an environment where they have social unsocial networks. So like, you know, I've talked to people, I've talked to like square dancing associations and stuff like that, and they love it. It just changes everything for them. Yeah, we're just starting a new project up in Lebanon, Oregon. It's a small rural town. We have one of our campuses up there. We just got the protocol approved. We're doing water yoga in geriatric population. It's actually, we did a Tai Chi study in Malaysia. And what you see, these are old folk coming down, they go through full range of, mm-hmm. and then they go have a cup of tea and talk about their kids or, you know, mm-hmm. what was ever going on. So this, this social connectedness yeah. as part of exercise, feeling connected to yourself and your community. And uh, that's why I love the wellness. I love to have, because we tend to do things that make us happier. If that is a healthy thing, we're going to be promoting it without doing it because, well, you know, I love to smoke, but I stopped smoking because I'm afraid of dying. Nah, that's, yeah. you know, that's why we, you know, the, the recidivate or, you know, I, I stopped drinking because I was afraid of, but that's the one thing that made me happy. So, you know, we get back to rewards, you know, a reward making you feel good versus a negative reinforcer just yes. takes away a bad. I would love to, if I leave anything in this back end of my career and I still love what I'm doing, I'm passionate about it, but to get people to understand the role of seeking happiness and having something feel good that, you know, I can feel good about what I'm doing and I'm doing it for me and the people that I love and care about. Les Brown, who is this motivational speaker, he said it best. He goes on this big, long thing. And at the end, he's like, well, if you can't be happy, what else is there? Ultimately, that's the goal of enjoying this little bit of time that we, you know, that we're blessed with to be on this yeah. thing we call life and it, and it's just happiness. And, and, and thank you for all the studying of the neurochemicals of happiness and everything. And I mean, kudos to you. I mean, your career is just, it's, it's a marvel and I mean, it's amazing. And I have oh, to say yeah. that what you said before about being, you know, humble, and it's not true. I think you've made a huge impact actually in, in, in your field and the way that people think about 
you know, some of these these issues. And, you know, in closing, I want to know how how can people if they want to learn more about what you've done, what's the best route to get a hold of you? If not like looking, you know, reading your articles and and going down, you know, yeah, looking yeah. at your books and things like how, how do they how do they find you? Well, I mean, I get a lot of emails from folks. They can they can email me. It's a real simple email address. It's dbaron, D-B-A-R-O-N, at westernu.edu. That's the current university I'm with. And, and I want to thank you not only for those comments, but this really is a team. You know, when we're talking about doing this, you know, you, you, you don't win a Super Bowl with uh, with 11 Patrick Mahomes, uh, you know, recent history. You know, you need him, but, you know, you need some linemen. You need somebody who can make a kick. You need yeah. someone who can block. And I think we're in this team. So I very much appreciate the kind comments you made, but I am just part of a team. For me, the greatest joy I get now is being able to train and have an impact on the next generation who I have no doubt will do far better work than I ever did. They'll take the bar to the next level. I'm thankful for the trainers and the mentors that I've had throughout my career. So many of them. I'm thankful to be able to make a contribution at a public level with something like you taking the initiative to go out. I mean, what good is it? It becomes state of the, you know, state of the shelf science if no one reads it or hears about it. So we're all part of this team and hopefully we can all feel good about what we do together because we're committed to this, this quality of life, which I think that's why we go into the health professions regardless, why we get, yes. hopefully get into, you know, public policy. We want to create something that's better for the people that 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 we live with, whether it's our own little community or the global community. So let me thank you for what you've done for allowing me to be a part of this and uh, your very kind comments. But I truly believe it's, uh, you know, sometimes maybe the quarterback gets a little bit more credit for it, but uh, I've seen some really good quarterbacks who had lousy seasons because their O-linemen got hurt and they were getting, you know, they had two seconds to throw the ball as opposed to having, you know, five or six. So it's a team approach. I like the fact that we're looking at some concepts that may be a little bit different, like focusing on wellness and happiness and lifestyle issues and, you know, kind of not so much taking responsibility, but choosing to do things that we know and then getting that reinforcement. We're all just so lucky to be a part of this. So thank you so much and certainly all the best of luck. I look forward to seeing and maybe even contributing to future podcasts down the road. Well, thanks. Cause you just, you just, I mean, you just took that out of my head. I think that uh, people that watch this podcast, they're going to want to hear more about some of these topics that we talked about today. And it's been a, a fascinating uh, discussion. So I, I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. And... It's been a lot of fun and I hope of some value for your listeners. And it's been great interacting with you and um, enjoy the rest of your day. And we look forward to working together in the future. All right. You, you as well.